You know how Finn never gets to tell Ray that one thing he wants to tell her? Or how Han Solo can give Leia a sarcastic quip but never really open up to her? Well, you don't have to be rebel scum or the captain of the Millennium Falcon to experience the kind of rich relationships and life that we all long for. I'm Mark Went, and I'm a men's wisdom coach. After people work with me, they have the confidence, emotional intelligence, and communication skills they need to be the heroes of their own story. To find out more, go to markwentcoaching.com, M-A-R-C-W-E-N-D-T, coaching.com. The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Pop Insider. The Pop Insider has all the latest in news, merch reviews, and other geeky goodness. Whether you're a wizard, a Sith Lord, or a superhero, fuel your fandom at thepopinsider.com. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part. Are you? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Want to know more? Do not attempt to adjust your device. This is a stream freedom audio bulletin. It cannot be traced. It cannot be stopped. And it is the only free voice left in the Geek Revolution. And welcome to another episode of Weeby Geeks. It is your dashing duo, Derek and myself, Mike. And we are being joined this week by the author of Back to the Future, the ultimate visual, actually, no. Back to the Future, revised and expanded edition, the ultimate visual history. And the author is Michael Clastorian. And I, Close enough. I butchered it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, hey, Derek, I think this is cool because we had Kevin Pike on earlier in the year. Uh, what, back in uh, August? Uh, one of the creators yeah. of the time machine itself. Um, and it, this kind of now has made our year a Jaws Back to the Future kind of year with, with the people we've had. So the, no, yeah. Don't don't forget Close Encounters. Oh, yeah. We did kind of cover Close Encounters, too, because we had Joe Alves on the show to cover both Jaws and Close Encounters. The the book I did right after the original Ultimate Visual History was Close Encounters of the Third Time, the Ultimate Visual History, uh, for the 40th anniversary of the the film. Oh, that's sweet. It was. um, It was great to, to meet all those people. I mean, I, I knew Kevin and I knew a couple of the people from uh, Close Encounters, but got to meet a whole new bunch of geeks, that's, which is always fun. That's awesome. Ah, yes. So tell us, that is. now this, this book is available now. I know on Amazon, because that's where I'm seeing it located. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's available in other bookstores as well. Um, looking at the preview copies we've gotten from from James, it's a gorgeous book. Thank you. I, I can't wait to get my hands on it. I'm a huge Back to the Future fan. Um, mm-hmm. So much that I'm still trying to find a filled and unfilled Pepsi bottle from Back to the Future 2 from a few years ago mm-hmm. from the anniversary. But I have the USA Today in honor of the day that they went into the future. Nice. Do you, but do you have both versions? USA Today put out two versions? Yes, they did. Uh, there was I, a... Uh-oh. It was a version with Marty Jr. on the cover where he yeah. said yeah. Youth Jet. And then there was a more limited edition of Griff and the Gang, and it says Gang Jailed. I have the one with Mar- with Marty Jr. Well, there you go. Something else to shoot for. <laughs> and in it fact... It looks like you're going to have to go on a hunt, Mike. In fact, in my new revised and expanded version of Back to the Future, the Ultimate Visual History, is, as you know, in the original book, we have a lot of prop reproductions and fun things, pullouts. For this new book, we have a new one, and that is a double-sided reproduction of both USA Today covers. Oh, sweet. That's cool. See, now I'm going to have have to look for the other the other USA Today because <laughs> I had to call USA Today in order because no one in my area had the Back to the Future cover. And I literally, <laughs> I took my daughter to school and went to the groceries and was at the grocery store when they opened. Oh, well, we don't know what you're talking about. Went to Walgreens. We don't know what you're talking about. Even waited and went to the bookstore when it opened. We don't know what you're talking about. Really? <laughs> I was... Um I was in New York on on the 26th of October, 2015. Um, I'd actually been there a couple of days for um, the special screening that they had um, in in uh, on the Upper West Side with Michael and Chris and um, Gail and uh, Leah and uh, Alan Silvestri and Huey Lewis. Um, not yeah. to just to drop a few names. Um, and, um, so I was going back to Los Angeles the following morning, which was the 22nd and at the airport in New York, stopped up, picked up a few USA Todays and, um, there was a layover in Chicago, got a few copies there and then in Los Angeles, uh, just a few more. So I stopped up. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm just because we're talking about this. I'm looking at eBay right now. I could get the USA Today poster prints of the two covers, but not the, and I could get the youth jailed. But I have, I am not. But then again, I'm also sorting this by um, price, lowest first, and I am not seeing. Well, this. Here's the uh, okay. Oh, nice. That's the double sided. Oh, uh, from the the new uh, book. So there, there you go. Gang jailed. Gang jailed. Well, right there. There is that's a, cool. There is a gang jailed and youth jailed. Back to the Future USA Today newspaper apparently signed. Starting price is two ninety nine ninety nine. Ooh, I want to know who it's signed by. Yes, seriously. Uh, yeah, and if it's the real signature, <laughs> another good question. Uh, sign, signed by one of Biff's gang, mem- 
gang members Ricky Dean Logan Data inscribed you Bojo. You Bojo. That would be how Ricky Dean signs his stuff. So it very possibly is is authentic. I wonder if I could call USA Today and go, how can I get a back issue of the gang jailed one? They'll tell you to go to eBay because they don't do them anymore. <laughs> yeah. Probably. <laughs> well, I do have. I also do have the Lego DeLorean, where you nice. built one of the, one of the three. And for me, I went with the original from the first film. It's a good choice. Partially because I thought, well, maybe I can eventually get the other, get two more, and build the other two. <laughs> Never got that far. Well, look, it, you know, you always get the, the question, which of the three movies do you like best? Or, you know, what was your favorite? If there was no part one, there wasn't going to be a part two and three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you got to start there. And that goes the same for DeLoreans <laughs> and everything yep. else. <laughs> yep. Um, well, I've even thought about, because Lego's done the hazmat suits. Right. And I've thought about getting the hazmat figure, uh, hazmat man. And going to Bricklink and getting the Marty McFly head and hair and the Doc head and hair <laughs> to put on top of them. So I can do that one. You know, I'll miss any, the hazmat suits are yellow. Not white. There's any number of configurations. The possibilities are endless. Yeah. So how did, <laughs> how did you get involved in creating this book? Well, um, it started some 30, 35 years earlier. Uh, because I worked as the unit publicist, the production publicist, on parts two and three. So oh, I was oh, there wow. every day for all of the filming, um, all the way through um, to the opening of part three. So it was good. Um, it was a great year and a half or so that I was um, immersed in the Back to the Future family. I was one of the few people who hadn't worked on part one, but came aboard for two and three. And and it was, and I've told the story a few times, it was by the grace of none other than Christopher Lloyd. Uh-huh. Um, I had worked with uh-huh. Chris on a film called The Dream Team, yeah. which starred Michael Keaton yeah. and, uh, and Peter Boyle and Stephen First. And I had previously worked with Michael on a film called Clean and Sober. So they asked me to come and do the Dream Team. Um, I got to be friendly with Chris. And when you work on a in production, um, towards the end of the filming, on-set chats always sort of start with, so um, what are you doing next? Because people need to find another job. Right. And, and Christopher and I had that conversation. I said, Chris, what are you doing next? He said, well, I'm, uh, I'm going to play Doc Brown in uh, Back to the Future 2. You, uh, you want me to call Bob Zemeckis and recommend you? <laughs> and uh, he, he barely got that last syllable out before I jumped down his throat and said, of course I do. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I'm sure that was a hard choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, but un- unlike other actors or producers or anything who will just do that as sort of lip service, um, mm-hmm. Chris picked up a phone and he called Bob Zemeckis. And a few months later, I found myself standing in Hill Valley, California, which was just yeah. astounding. Oh, sweet. So uh, that's great. At, at the end of part three, um, I did a smaller book, 
which was just about the three movies, um, which Universal had been doing, planning with a, another publisher. And the person who was writing that um, needed to be uh, replaced for various reasons. And at the last minute, Bob Dale suggested to them that I do it. Um, and it was great. I was, I was really happy to do it. It was 88 pages long, appropriately, except for the fact that I had to, they had already laid out the photos in the book. So I had to write around the photos and I only very specific number of words that I could put into the book. And there was no give on it, no negotiation. This is it. Wow. These, um, so over the years, I had always wanted to do a real book, <laughs> you know, the real ultimate story that, that no one had ever told. And, and you see books about good movies and how they were made. And nobody had ever really done a deep dive into Back to the Future. Hmm. So for a number of years, I um, called around, checked with um, – sorry, I got a little computer glitch there. Oh, um, talked to publishers, and the timing wasn't right for some reason here and there. But ultimately, in around uh, – as, as we were preparing for 2015, um, there was a publisher who was willing to, um, to take the, the trip with me. Um, and I was, um, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. It was hard as hell. Um, you know, people always ask how long it took me to write the book. And my standard answer is about 30 years. Uh, (laughs) It was, it was so amazing to, you know, just go back and and see everybody and, and re relive the, the, time the memories and and see people who were we were all a family we were very much a family um and everybody was so giving and wonderful people saying oh i you know i've got some pictures left over or you know in a box somewhere let me get those for you and um michael j fox said come come to new york let's sit down um so i did and you know just every everybody said yes Everybody wanted to be part of it, and it gave me the opportunity. Um, you know, Bob, Bob Zemeckis, Bob Gale, um, both went into their private archives and opened them up to me. Oh, awesome! Uh, wow. And and what I had always wanted to do was to show stuff that you know you've over the course of thirty years you see a lot of Back to the Future stuff, but you yeah. see most of the same stuff. Yeah. I wanted to show people real behind-the-scenes things that they don't ordinarily get a chance to see. Um, and, and I'm told I did. One of the things I, I'm marveling over, I mean, I knew about some of the stories of who people were called for different roles. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have in here a page from um, <laughs> Gail Oliver talking about, please call in passes for the following people. Right. Um, and seeing names like Jason Giddich, Chris Nash, Tony Hudson, Barbara Howard, Johnny Depp. Yeah. yeah. I think Ralph Macchio's on that. Uh, uh no. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, no, he is not no. on this one. Ralph, Ralph was on a different list. Um, <laughs> Chris Rydell, Robert yep. DeLapp, Crispin, or Crispin Glover, and it says, yep. no, reading for wow. George. Right. Julianne Phillips, crossed out. Mm-hmm. Joyce Heiser, Charlie Sheen, crossed out. Huh? And Fisher Stevens, right. which I knew about Fisher Stevens. I did not know about Johnny Depp. Yeah. Um, and, in many, <laughs> and in many ways, I'm so glad no Johnny Depp. <laughs> well, and, and the um, I, I think on, on the latest reissue of, of the Blu-ray 4K DVDs, um, they have – Charlie Sheen's uh, audition. Yeah. From, uh, I, see, I gotta get, the, I gotta get the blue. I had the, or, di- I had or, the DVD or, or, set. Downey Jr. I don't. It's I, one or the other. They're, I, they're the same guy, right? Almost. <laughs> I, I had, I have the DVD set, the three disc mm-hmm. DVD set uh, that came in the blue box, yeah. which I love. And I think one of my favorite outtakes is Michael J. Fox dressed, you know, wearing just a white T-shirt. He's got the the hat and, and um, you know, he's looking in at Lorraine going, man, she's cheating. Look at her. She cheat- no, she ain't for me. Pretty much walks off. I know it's, I'm not doing it exact, but find that, <laughs> find that, um, that clip and you're going to laugh so much. I was like, okay, this is cool that they just did this just to lighten up the mood on set. It's so cool. Well, and, and on part three, we, we did something similar. I mean, it was not as elaborate as that one. Um, when Michael was playing Seamus McFly, and he makes his entrance into the cabin, and, and the scene is um, he comes in and says, Maggie, I've got dinner. And he holds up three rabbit pelts. Um, so we did it a few times. And then we, Michael went off stage, and we were about to reset it. Somebody handed him a huge five-foot Roger Rabbit doll. <laughs> so Mac is called action. Michael walks in. Maggie, I've got dinner. <laughs> Roger that's, that's on one of the DVDs somewhere, I'm sure. Oh, have, I'm going to have to go look for it. That is good. I, I like that. See, I love stories like this. Um, yeah. So since you had not worked on Back to the Future, film one, what was some of the most surprising things you discovered while doing research for the book about the first film? Well, it's it's not that I discovered so much. And, and I did actually have a, a bit of a connection to part one because the um, there were a few of my friends who were working on it including the first assistant director, uh, a man named David McGiffer, who was a very dear, dear friend. And he, in fact, invited me to visit the set um, one of the days. Um, I also knew of the troubles that they were going through, um, through a, a couple of my friends. Um, so so I did get to visit the set on the day in Lou's Diner, okay. where George comes in, orders a chocolate milk goes up to Lorraine and tells her um, he is her density and I thought wow this is this is phenomenal I, I love this I only wish someday I get to work on a movie like this <laughs> and you know so a, a few years later of course um, I did but um, to answer your question you know I'd, I'd heard a lot of stories but I also I, I got to see 
every version of the script from the very first draft that Zemeckis and Gale did until the production uh, draft of it, the final. And and what was really surprising was, was all the changes, where it started on the first draft, and Marty was a video pirate. And he and Doc were making copies of, of videotapes. That was how Doc was funding his experiments. And, you oh, know, wow. so he w- wasn't just the innocent, you know, rabscallion, as it were. Um, there was a little edge to him. And, and of course, everybody knows that the time machine was not a car. It was, and, and this is sort of a little misnomer. Everyone refers to it as a refrigerator. It wasn't a refrigerator. It was a time chamber. But it sort of looked like a refrigerator. So that's, that's where over the years everyone just refers to it as the refrigerator, um, leading to the nuke the fridge uh, movement in Indiana Jones 4. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Because that was, you know, the, the ending, the original ending of Back to the Future took place in the nuclear testing grounds in Nevada which is how they generated the 1.21 gigawatts oh, to get gosh. the time machine back. And, oh, and it was, it turned out that Universal said, it's too much money, can't do it. But there's an entire storyboard, and, and some of them are, are in the book. I mean, I, I show a lot of those storyboards for that sequence. Um, so they, they had to figure out or refigure out the end of the movie. And they had already committed to shooting in, in at Universal Studios, and it was one night where Zemeckis and Gale were walking around looking at it, and they came upon the whole lightning hits the clock tower bit. And that, you know, that went into the, I think that was the third draft, maybe. Okay. Um, you know, and, and what, what was interesting, and I, I detail... The changes, and I, I, I do a lot of excerpts from those things, was, was how certain things evolved from one thing to the other. And like I said, first, the time machine was a chamber. So in the first script, they're always driving it around on the back of a pickup truck, and they're loading it, unloading it, and it became a waste of time. They said, we've got to figure something out here because we can't waste all this time doing this. And, and so they said, well... We'll put it in a car. The time machine will be a car. So that solves that problem. Wow. Um, and, and then it went to the extreme of it being a DeLorean because it looked like a spaceship. And Bob Zemeckis knew exactly that that was the car he wanted. Okay. Ah, uh, yes. I was going to say, if it wasn't the DeLorean, the only thing I could think of would be the Lotus, uh, Lotus Esprit. You know, not a bad idea. But what we do know from the stories is that it was never going to be a Ford Mustang <laughs> because a product placement executive who was working on the film and product placement are the guys who say, hey, uh, if you put Pepsi in your movie, you'll get this much money or you'll get that or this and that. And, and right. you know, everyone's bartering. Um, and one day he came to Bob Gale and he said, listen, if we can make the car a Ford Mustang, they'll pay $75,000. Now, wow. back in 1984, that was a pretty decent amount of money. Right. Um, and, and Bob Gale tells the story often. He loves to tell it. He looked at the guy straight in the eye and he said, 
Doc Brown does not drive an effing Ford Mustang. But he was <laughs> forward. <laughs> well, since, since you mentioned Pepsi and product placement. Yeah. All I want is a Pepsi. We'll, we'll, we'll do it ourselves. Who doesn't? <laughs> um, it's very refreshing. So I, I just want to touch back on the refrigerator. So is is that what is, – is the refrigerator then in Indiana Jones and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull a nod to what would have been from Back to the Future, kind of that Easter egg? Take, take it as you will because uh, Marty – was in that refrigerator when the nuclear blast went off, and it brought him back to 1985. So it was around, and I'm not, you know, infer from it what you would like. And it's some of the same producing team with Frank Marshall and Kennedy and obviously with Spielberg. Uh Uh-huh. So, okay, I can see that. I I can see that potentially. It's like we're going to get this gag in no matter what. Because I I can see it. Derek and, Derek and I have the argument. I'm one of the few people who actually enjoyed King, uh, Crystal Skull because I I, not, I remember hearing George and Steven talk about, well, it's a nod to the old 50s B-movies. I'm like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. perfect. This totally makes sense, and I get it. Um, but there's a lot of people who are going, yeah, just because we know that, it was a horrible movie. I'm like, okay. That would be one of those. I wouldn't say it was a horrible movie, but I wouldn't say it was a great movie either. No, and, no, it, it was not one of the best of the of the four. For me, I, I had a very serious misgivings about one member of the cast who shall remain nameless. Oh, oh okay. okay. Now, hey, we won't push. And no, speaking of won't push at all, members of the cast. Um, who people didn't have good opinions of. Um, there's a lot of stuff about Eric Stoltz. I was going to get there. Eric Stoltz was originally mm. Biff, correct? No, Eric Stoltz was Marty. That's right. I got him confused. So what happened that, because he, he shot quite a bit of the film. Five and a half weeks. So what happened that they caused right. the switch to, to Michael J. Fox? Michael was always the number one choice to be Marty. From day one, except for the fact that Michael was working on Family Ties. And Zemeckis and Gail went to the producer of Family Ties and said, um, we, would, we would love to have Michael in this movie. Is there any possibility whatsoever? And, and Gary David Goldberg, who was that producer, said, no. Um, the female lead in the series, Meredith Baxter, is pregnant. She's going to be out. And I need Michael to carry a lot of the episodes that she's not going to be there for. So, okay, can't, I, I kind of remember that. Not even going to show him the script. That's it. Wow. So they wow. went back to the search. They searched everywhere. They auditioned so many people. And it came down to a few people. And Sid Scheinberg, who was the head of Universal at the time, pushed Eric Stoltz because Eric had been in uh, a film that hadn't been released just yet called Mask. And his performance was supposed to be absolutely phenomenal and great. And Mr. Scheinberg said, look, you got to put him in this movie. And because of all of the delays, it, it took them so long to get all the casting right. And they pushed and pushed and pushed. So at one point, Mr. Scheinberg said, 
you start on this date or you don't make this movie at all. So they accepted Eric Stoltz. Now, there's a, a, a bit of the story that's could have happened, might not have happened. Urban legend. Urban legend where Mr. Scheinberg said to Zemeckis and Gale and Neil Kant and the producer, if Stoltz doesn't work out, you can reshoot the, the movie. Um, that's, that's what Bob Gale remembers, and I believe Bob Zemeckis told me the same thing. Sid Scheinberg doesn't remember having said that. <laughs> um, I, I had the opportunity to speak with Mr. Scheinberg, who is uh, unfortunately no longer with us, but he didn't remember that. Mm. So um, in, in went um, Eric, and they started shooting, and over the course of the weeks, Eric had a, a different approach to the role that everybody else had sort of expected or wanted out of it. Um, Eric was, he was a method actor. So um, once he got to the set, he had to be called Marty. You, you couldn't, mm. uh, you couldn't call him Eric. Even if there was a, a car about to barrel down on him, if you had said, Eric, get out of the way, he wouldn't move. Yeah. <laughs> like Marty, get out of the way. And then sure, he'd, he'd leave. Um, he questioned a lot of Zemeckis' direction. What, what's my motivation mm. for crossing the street the way you asked me to cross the street? Um, at which point, Mr. Zemeckis said, tell you what, you cross it that way, and when you get here, I'll tell you. <laughs> it was, it was a, a very difficult situation, and Eric was not playing it. He, he was playing it in a very realistic way, um, taking it almost as a drama, and he was playing the role very seriously. So at one point after a few weeks, um, Zemeckis went to the editing room where he sat down with Artie Schmidt, one of the editors. He said, how's it going? And, and Artie said, look, Christopher Lloyd, phenomenal. Tom Wilson, great. Leah Thompson, wonderful. Crispin Glover, terrific. But where Marty is, is a big hole. It just doesn't mesh with everything else. So Zemeckis showed it to Spielberg and, you know, and Gale and all the people. And they said, he's right. It doesn't work. It's, it's not working. Um, and because it had taken so long to get the movie into production, and then they had shot for five weeks or so, they went back to Gary David Goldberg at Family Ties and said, we will do anything. If we can have Michael J. Fox. By that time, Meredith had had the baby. She was back to work. And Gary said, I tell you what, I'll give Michael the script. If he wants to do it, I'm not going to stop him. But Family Ties is going to come first. So no matter what happens, he does this show first. Then he can come work around us and do your movie. And they said, of course. And... That's pretty much how uh, how it happened. They, and then Gary brought Michael in, said, I, "I've got this uh, script. It's from from these guys and Steven Spielberg producing, executive producing." And uh, Michael took the envelope, his hand, held it up, sort of felt it. He goes, "This feels perfect. I'll do it." <laughs> and and that's how it started. I mean. Uh, you know, in the uh, they they did have to make a case to Mr. Scheinberg to allow them to reshoot five and a half weeks of movie 
Wow. And um, uh, ultimately, that was rough. <laughs> well, ultimately, he saw he saw the wisdom in it. So uh, you know, he Mr. Scheinberg was a very very smart man. I mean, he, he wasn't an mm. idiot. Um, he's known in in Back to the Future world for having suggested that they change the title from Back to the Future to Spaceman from Pluto. <laughs> Which is the title of the story from Tales from Space, the fictional comic in the movie. And, you know, the, the funny thing was when I went to interview Mr. Scheinberg, when we sat down, he said, okay, I'm going to just one thing. I'm going to answer your questions. But if I don't remember something, then you can't print it. If I remember it and it's you know in my head and I and I agree on, it, then you can print it. But if if I don't remember this, then you can't print it. And I said, okay, great. We're talking and, and he's telling me all these wonderful, interesting stories. And then at one point he says, oh yeah, yeah. Also, there was a story going around, and and this was like Zemeckis and Spielberg who were claiming that I wanted to change the title of the movie. <laughs> Spaceman from Pluto. And that never happened. And what he didn't know was that in my bag uh, with all my folders was a copy of the actual memo that he wrote to Steven Spielberg. (laughs) 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 Suggesting the change. Now, I sure as heck wasn't going to show it to him. (laughs) He said, he said, you know, if I had said that, I guess the reason is, you know, if you look at the time, you can't go back to the future. So that's that's what, you know, if I ever was going to change the title, that's why. But I didn't, never did. Spielberg and Zemeckis keep telling everybody, but I didn't. <laughs> so um, it's, it's um, a full page reprinted in the book of, of that memo. And being, you know, the the chicken that I am, I never asked Mr. Scheinberg about it again. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. (laughs) Now, what was your question? (laughs) I got so I got so involved in the story. I forgot because. I Great think, story. I think it, started, it started with Eric Stoltz. Oh yes, yes. that's right. Yes. Oh, how, how did he? What, what you pretty much covered how how he he left. But I, I think overacting. The, well, yeah, <laughs> or, or underacting. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of you know another thing that I really was very proud of was being able to find so many pictures of Eric as Marty that had never been published as well. Mm. So, um, and, and Universal Studios was as generous as everyone else with me because uh, they, they very graciously allowed me to print them. Yeah. Uh, this is one of their landmark films that still holds up and such a geek and cult following. I don't see why they wouldn't if it just helps add to the lore and probably in their in their minds add to the to the pocketbooks. Yeah, um, I, I, I'd have to agree with that. Um, uh, you know what? A, a lot of for, for a long, long time, this stuff got forgotten. They, they, they didn't really care about their older films. It was all about the new stuff. What, right. What's new, what's coming up. Um, there, there was not a lot of pride in the, in the legacy films. 
And, you know, this this was one of the films that we were hopefully uh, they I, I mean, hopefully, thankfully, they had a lot of material, a lot of stuff that was left there. See, this is what we fans do. We we bring this stuff back, whether the studios want it to or not. Mm-hmm. So now I, I do want to ask, um, since you said you were on set um for two and three, what led to the actress change of Marty's girlfriend, Jennifer, from there? It was very simple. Uh, it, it wasn't it had nothing, nothing like the the Eric Stoltz into Michael J. Fox thing. Um, Claudia Wells, who played Jennifer in part one, her mom was very ill. Um, and a decision she had to make a decision whether or not um, she would go and take care of her mother. Which she did. That um, was her decision. Very admirable. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So unfortunate, uh, but yeah. exactly. But um, and and I guess her mom was got better over over time there. Um, so that that led to uh, Elizabeth Shue coming in. Okay. I was gonna say I was almost well. They they filmed two and three back to back, so. We did. You, you couldn't. You couldn't pull a national lampoon and hey, Jennifer's yet another actress for this. Because <laughs> I, I do love that story about National Lampoon with Vacation. It's like why it wasn't Michael J. Fox and um, the gal who played his sister in European Vacation. Well, she wasn't available for filming, so they decided instead of just having one, they're going to recast both. Right. And then they just go, well, since we recast in the last fo- in, for vacation, we're going to recast for Christmas vacation and so on and well, so on. And it just become part of the running joke with the, with the franchise. Well, you know, the, the, the real joke is that um, Zemeckis and Gale say they never expected there to be a sequel to the movie. They, they were going to be surprised if anyone came to see this movie. Bob Gale, I mean, Bob Zemeckis rather, um, told me. That while they were making it, and and they had to replace Eric with Michael, and even though Michael was doing a great job, Zemeckis said, "You know, I'm probably never going to work again." And there was there was doubt, and the movie the movie took off. But what happened was the original ending of the film. Doc comes back. Says, "Marty, come on." You've got to come back with me. It's your kids. Something has to be done with your kids. So he and Marty and Jennifer get back into the car. Right. Zemeckis and Gail say, if we knew there was going to be a sequel, we would have never let Jennifer get into that car Mm. because they had to deal with it. And that was when they started, when they agreed to do a part two, which led to part two and three, um, they found themselves boxed in because – Everybody wanted to know what happened to Marty's kids. What was the problem with Marty's kids? And they felt if they didn't deal with it, people were going to be disappointed and let down. Mm. Two, two was right. two was very well done, and I think they tackled it well. They did. Oh no, no doubt. But it would have been a different film with if if Jennifer didn't go back. Yeah, you know they mm. still had stuff in the future. But Jennifer wasn't involved in that way because there's there's a you know I, I go into the different scripts of of that as well of of two and three. Okay. It's so interesting to think of of how different the movie could have been with all these different instances, and uh, it makes you wonder. 
how well the movie would have done if like if it had if they had stuck with Eric Stoltz or if you know if they had done a different sequel or not or yeah. whatnot. Yeah. If it would have been if it still would have been as as beloved a movie f- franchise. I I think if if they had completed the film with Eric Stoltz, none of us would be sitting here talking right now. Mm. Quite possible. On that on that note, um, yep. I want to take a quick pause for uh, our advertiser. Uh, so we're going to be right back. Have you ever wanted to deeply connect with someone the way Vision does with Scarlet Witch? Or be the stand-up guy like Cyclops is for Jean Grey? Well, you don't have to be fused to an Infinity Stone or be the leader of a superhero team to have the kind of relationships in life we all long for. Mark Went is a men's wisdom coach. And after people work with him, they have the confidence, emotional intelligence, and communication skills they need to be the heroes of their own story. To find out more, go to markwentcoaching.com. That's M-A-R-C-W-E-N-D-T coaching.com. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? And we're back. Uh, we're chatting with, with Michael, uh, the author of, and I don't want to butcher the last name, um, but it, it's Michael it's K. Michael, Michael Klosterin. <laughs> Klosterin. There we go. Uh, author of Back to the Future, the revised and expanded edition of the ultimate visual history. Um, we've had some great stories so far. While you were on set for two and three, what were your... F- what were some of your favorite moments? What were some of them? We'll, we'll start there first because I, I could just go, here's a four-part question, <laughs> which Derek well, you knows know, I'm notorious for that. The mm-hmm. well, favorite moments was the very first night of shooting because, um, as I said, when I had visited the set on part one, that I always wished that I was going to be able to work on a movie like that. And then four years later, there I was at night in the middle of Hill Valley in 1955, surrounded by new friends, old friends, Chris Lloyd, and I was there with Marty and Doc. Oh. <laughs> and and the first night we filmed. First, we did uh, one of those very uh, elaborate scenes where Doc of 1985 interacted with Doc of 1955. So Chris had to play two Docs. Or a paradox, as it were, <laughs> uh, and he was he was very um, concerned uh, about being able to get back everything that was Doc Brown from four years earlier. Oh wow! And and he thought he was going to have a little time to sort of ease back into it, but no, they, you know they they went full tilt more. On him, um, but he did. I mean, they they had to recreate the moment uh, right after the DeLorean disappeared and went back to 1985, and Doc is running down the streets celebrating. And then after we finished that, it was around 11 o'clock at night, and then Michael showed up because he had just finished Family Ties, <laughs> and we filmed the very last shot from Back to the Future Part Two on the very first night of filming of Back to the Future Part 2, where Marty comes, he's disappeared in the DeLorean, oh. celebrating, and all of a sudden, Marty comes running back around the corner and says, Doc, Doc, I'm back. I'm back from the future. <laughs> and, and there was an electric 
moment because they were Marty and Doc back together again. And and it was like no time had passed for for anyone, including <laughs> So that was a, just an amazing um, experience. There's so, so many different scenes and, and – I, I mean, there were a lot of scenes that took forever to do, like the the scene in the McFly house in 2015, where Michael and, and or Marty Marty Jr. and Marlene are all eating pizza in the kitchen. So to do three Michael J. Foxes, um, throw in Leah Thompson and and Jeffrey yeah. Weissman, an upside down George, um, and and all of that stuff, it took four days to do that one scene. So that was like molasses. Wow. Um, part three was amazing because we, we went up north to Northern California where they had built the entire town. And, and it was like being in the old West. Wow. Uh, and that's where I, I got to be a cowboy and, and have my <laughs> cameo in the film. Oh, very cool. Yes. Um, I went to Bob Gale and I said, I want to be a cowboy. And he said, well, let's, let's ask Mr. Zemeckis. And Zemeckis said, yeah, what the heck? Come on. He had actually a couple of, of people from the crew um, did uh, little cameos. So, you know, that was fun. Okay. Since you brought up three, what was it like having ZZ Top on set? That was amazing um, because we were doing this dance festival. It was the middle of the night. We'd be set, setting up new lights, a new part of the scene, or if there was a, a little bit of a, a problem with cameras, ZZ Top would just stand on stage and they'd start jamming. Oh, oh cool. Yeah. Um, they, they were the, the sweetest guys. Uh, no one wanted to go back to work. You know, we were having our own private concert. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. Now, they're amazing films in, in such different ways. And to have witnessed all of it was just one of the best experiences that I've, I've ever had or will ever have. Um, being in the middle of Monument Valley. Arizona, where John Ford shot all his classic westerns, mm. where we did the, the drive-in scene, where Marty gets into the DeLorean to go back to nineteen uh, to eighteen eighty-five to save Doc. So the drive-in was was built for the film. It, it wasn't oh, pre-existing. No, no, that was on national park land, and it took an hour to get from the top rim of the canyon down to where it was built. And when we finished shooting, mm. every splinter of wood, every bit of our footprint had to be removed. Oh, wow. Hmm. Because that was, that was part of the deal that we had made with the Parks Department. Now, that was also coldest of the shooting days that we had. Um, and. Mm. There wasn't a lot of places that you could hide because we had to be down there with the least amount of equipment. So there weren't a lot of dressing rooms. There weren't places to hang out. And it was 20 degrees, 30 degrees in the morning. It, it never got above like maybe 40 degrees at best. And if you look at what Michael and Chris are wearing in that scene, yeah, I mean, it was just bitter mm. cold. 
Huh. So spectacular to look at, very cold to be in. And, and huh. so, so I'm assuming they had to go back and remove all the the breath vapors that would have been excelled from the two of them during that during that whole scene since it's so cold and they're trying to oh. load it's not that cold. Um you know what I think it I, th- I think we had gotten to the point in the shooting day where you couldn't see their breath. Okay. This was this was a time where computer generated effects were not the right the rule. Right. Oh yeah before then. Yeah. But we also had to make sure like when we when we were up in Hill Valley in eighteen eighty five we had to make sure that there were no jets that had been flying that left contrails that you could oh, see. Oh, right. Oh, you mean like what happened in Gladiator where you see the jet flying over? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. It's funny. You don't realize how much would have to go into just doing what seems like something simple like that for the movie. Like going doing an old west scene and well but it's not just an old west scene it's, right it was building hill valley from the ground up there because they they looked at universal studios in the town square and they said you know what we can't do it here because it's very limited you you if you look 10 feet to the left there are office buildings if you look 10 feet to the right there there are other structures when, when you go up north and you take acres of land, then you can do it right. Mm-hmm. And Rick Carter, the production designer, just took the, the basic blueprints of what it was for one and two, and he expanded everything. Right. And mm-hmm. there, there, was a, um, there was an effort to keep all of the electrical equipment, the trucks, everything modern as far away from the set as possible. So it really helped to give you the uh, the feel of being back in the old days. Oh, wow. Now, after the movies, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we've covered all the movies in the book. You go even a step further. You go into the, the animated series. I, I dared to go where no one else would go. I loved the animated <laughs> I loved, again, I was in high school, though, when it came out, high school, college. But I enjoyed it because I was a fan of the franchise. But I really enjoyed the the series. Well, if if you did your homework, then you know that I co-wrote two of the episodes of the animated series with my brother, um, and and that was very very fun and very nerve wracking. Um, <laughs> You know, we we used to play a game when we were shooting part three. Everyone knew there wasn't going to be a part four. Um, That was made very clear. But every now and then, we'd go up to Bob Gale and say, hey, here's part four. And I would say, Marty and Doc go to ancient Rome where they meet Ben-Hur and (laughs) Diffacus. And we'd laugh and <laughs> walk away. And, you know, uh, a year after we had finished, they announced the animated series. And I called Bob and I said, hey, Bob, Marty and Doc go to ancient Rome <laughs> and Ben-Hur. And he said, and he said write it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, that backfired. <laughs> 
No, that, that's the opposite of backfiring. Well, I mean, you're, you meant it as a joke and it ended up becoming yeah. reality. But what was nerve wracking was writing for the characters of Marty and Doc because nobody else had done that except for Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale. Wow. And you had to make sure that they were Marty and Doc and right. not just right. pale imitations. Now, the, seri- the the animated series only ran one season, right? Two seasons. Two seasons, okay. I was and here's an, I've an seen a lot since then. <laughs> yeah. Here's an interesting little tidbit about um, the first season. As, as you know, each animated uh, episode had wraparounds with Christopher Lloyd as Doc. Yeah. Doing a science experiment. That's right. Now, yeah. Now, okay, two interesting things. His assistant in those things was Bill Nye, the science guy, oh. who wasn't really known back then right. for, for being Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs> the other interesting tidbit is that those wraparounds were directed by a gentleman named Peyton Reed, who would later go on to do things like Ant-Man. Yes. And uh, in the final episode of season two of The Mandalorian. Yes, that's correct. Um, Uh, Peyton had originally worked on the sets of two and three, um, directing the what what we call the EPK, the electronic press kit, the behind the scenes stuff. That you would see on hmm. on HBO or on TV on somewhere, and that's where um, Peyton got his start with a, a company that was hired to do that work. Oh wow! Huh. Oh, very cool. I had no idea. Yeah, um, uh, Peyton wasn't available for season two um, to do that, so Bob Gale stepped in and he directed it. Oh, cool! Oh, huh. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Now, from from the animated series, uh, this, the franchise has spun off to comics, mm-hmm. toy crossovers, because we have Gigawatt, the Transformer. We do. Uh, we talked earlier about the Lego mm-hmm. uh, time machine that was a fan-created build that they chose. I was under the Kuso line before it became Lego Ideas. Um, I mean, the franchise has gone even as far as there's a Japanese wrestler by the name of Kushida, <laughs> whose nickname is the Time Splitter, and I think that's possibly his finishing move as well. And he comes out dressed like Marty McFly. I think I think I've seen photos of that. And <laughs> when I first saw that, I'm like, okay, because I I was typically. Um, and it's coming up soon because New Japan Wrestling does a, sh- a wrestling show. It's their WrestleMania called Wrestle Kingdom. Uh-huh. Uh, I watch it every year, and that's where I first saw him. And I'm like, okay, I want to see more of this guy. And but, he, ha- but he had a tag partner that dressed uh-huh. like Doc Brown. You know what? <laughs> they missed a bet because his finishing move should have been called the Flux Incapacitor. Uh, <laughs> that would have been good, yes. So, just saying. But to, to your point, yes, Back to the Future has flourished. It has continued. It's a movie that gets older, but it doesn't age. And mm-hmm. and it is multi-generational. 
And that's as we approach the 35th anniversary of the release of part one, um, I was very graciously asked if I wanted to revise the last chapter of the book and bring it up to today. Um, and, and I said, of course, I, I would love to. And in addition to the stuff that you've mentioned, we touch on the comic books, we touch on the toys and, and the Legos. Um, the, there were things like um, Back to the Future in Concert, where yep. the movie is shown with a symphony orchestra playing the score. Oh, that would be so Where cool. Alan Silvestri, the composer, actually wrote an additional 15 minutes of score because wow. what they found when they first went to do it was literally the first 15 minutes of Back to the Future doesn't have a score. It has Huey Lewis singing Power of Love, but there's no incidental background music right. anywhere within those first 15, 20 minutes. So Alan went back to do that. Um, uh, we take the book. I talked, I got a chance to talk to Seth MacFarland and, (laughs) and to, um, talk about him bringing Doc Brown back to 1885 for the best cameo in the world in his movie, uh, a million ways to die in the West. Oh yeah. Where, um, and I'm sure you can see it anywhere. Um, Seth Seth's character is walking through an old western town in the middle of the night and he looks he sees a barn in the distance and there's flashing lights coming from inside and he goes up to the barn he sort of knocks on the door he looks inside and he says excuse me and there's a man shuffling around and he turns around and it's Doc Brown and he grabs a tarp and throws it over the DeLorean. <laughs> and and Seth's character says, um, what, what are you doing here? And he looks at him and he goes, uh, weather experiment. <laughs> and that was the bit. But Seth added that at the last minute um, before they started wow. the film. Because he, he's a huge Back to the Future fan as well. And the DeLorean that's in that scene is Seth's. It belongs to Seth. Oh wow! Oh really? Yeah. Oh well, I know I know he's made references with Back to the Future off and on in Family Guy as well, just like he has with Star Wars before he did the Star Wars specials. Right. See, now I almost want to see Seth do a Back to the Future three part series, <laughs> like he did with with Star Wars, and, and the first one is Spaceman from Pluto. There you go, <laughs> and, and it's the fam it's the Family Guy character characters recreating the movie (laughs) may have may have to um (laughs) so 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 there was there was that and then of course um um october 21st 2015 which was dubbed future day yep and all of the events that happened um including that screening that i talked about earlier and marty and doc on the jimmy kimmel show yeah remember that uh, for the first time as marty and doc since Back to the Future Three, see, I actually, I actually took that day off from work, uh-huh. so I could, I could do Back to the Future Day here at the house because I, I watched the movies. I mean, yeah, they were on AMC. I'm like, yes, no, I got the DVDs. I'm gonna put them on DVDs and not have commercials. Right. But, you know, I did the hunt. Did you for time the it? Did you time it so that when they landed in the future, uh, it was the exact same time where you were? 
Yes, I did. Okay. I did. <laughs> I did. And then I looked outside and I'm like, yep, looks nothing like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I do think it's funny because um, it was 2015 that we almost had the Cubs win the World Series. Yep. Uh, we did. And, and luckily or happily for me, it was, I believe, the New York Mets who uh, – eliminated them from that yeah. uh, standing. Uh, but yeah, year later, okay, so there was a little problem in the space-time continuum <laughs> in, in which it was just a year. It happens. Well, yeah. also too, that film called um, a baseball team in Miami. Now, wrong wrong league. Wrong league and division, called, yeah. Called them American League, not, and they ended up National League, but yeah. a baseball team in Miami. <laughs> that I was wild. Now, has it shocked you, um, one, being part of the films, two, writing this book, that you know, Nike a couple times have done the shoes. Uh, first time was for charity. The other time, next time was for the actual shoe collectors. And that they're actually going for the um, type of tying system that was talked about in the film, that they're actually working on that. <clears throat> Make that a reality. Um, sure. Why not? <laughs> if you can do it, do it. But – who knows yeah. if if they're going to get that right? How many how many real hoverboards have you seen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've you seen know? some great fake videos showing an actual hoverboard. Yes, that's but, and that's yeah. closest it's going to get is yeah. the fake videos. But, but actually, I think I have seen that there was one. But they said the the electromagnetic propulsion for it was so intense. It was they did it to prove that it was it was made, but not truly safe because it was just too much electromagnetic field that it wasn't it wasn't safe for the the human on the board. Yeah, um, and I, there there was one attempt where they actually had to like line the floors of a room with copper or something. I, yeah. I don't remember. It's, it's, it's that same video, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it was just so ridiculous. It would have cost a fortune, and then you could only overboard in that room. Yeah, so, <laughs> not, not quite the same experience. Well, um, the video with Tony Hawk, though. Oh, that was so believable. That yeah. was so well done and so believable. Well, that was the one that, that Chris that, Boyd was in. Yeah, yeah. Chris That's Boyd what made it so believable. Like, okay, and Billy wow, Zane. they actually did it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that was that was a lot of fun. Um, it, it took around two days before it came out that it was yeah. all you – know, uh, it was for Funny or Die. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, in, in, uh, I want to say around 2015 um, – Christopher Lloyd did something with Gibson guitars with a back to, I think with, when they reintroduced um, the model guitar that Marty uses in the movie was reintroduced for, for the anniversary of the franchise. Cause he was at Nam doing that introduction. You know, you, you never know where Chris is going to show up as Doc Brown. I would, and that's, I would, and that's the great thing about it. I would love to have have him show up here as Doc Brown and, and many of his other characters. I I love yeah. Christopher Lloyd. Me too. Yeah. And, and you mentioned great. you mentioned earlier Dream Team. Uh-huh. I love that movie. I 
I haven't seen it in a while. I, it's it's now on my list to go find to watch again. Um, but you also mentioned to Michael Keaton's Clean and Sober, which I I think is one of my in my top five hockey movies. And a lot of people don't realize that that was a hockey movie because he plays a hockey player in that. No, he doesn't. Okay, then what movie am I thinking of? Uh, I I know the movie you're thinking of, but it wasn't Clean and Sober. I can't I can't think of the title at the moment. Clean and Sober was Michael uh, playing an an ad executive who is hopelessly addicted to drugs and is hiding out in a rehab facility um, to avoid uh, debtors or or creditors. Um, Well, the the hockey film he does, it's the same thing. The character is an addict. Okay. Um, But now I've got to figure out which one I'm mm -hmm. confused with. Well... Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I guess you could say it was Michael Keaton that actually um, got me on Back to the Future, if you want to be technical about it. But, you know, um, and, and one of the other things that I, I think is, should be mentioned about the, the revised and expanded edition is the future of Back to the Future, and that is the musical. Right. Oh, yeah. And, um, the musical went through a period, you know, it, it took a total of nine years from Zemeckis and Gale's first attempt at selling Back to the Future as a movie until the end of the trilogy. It took over 15 years for them to get it on stage. And you would think that would have been an easier job, but it wasn't. Yeah. Um, so I, I get to tell the story of that. And it opened um, just a few short days before the world closed down. Remember that. Uh, but um, it opened to tremendous reviews. And um, again, I got to speak to the the actors and the director of it. Um, and it's it's going to open again uh, in 2021 in London. Excellent. Well, hopefully it gets to reopen uh, when Broadway reopens they're talking what june or july hopefully well, i get to reopen it there too first london then broadway excellent but, and the the movie i was thinking of was touch and go right with michael keaton exactly so um where where would you like to see the franchise go from here if you that's, could you know what that's that's not up to me that that's up to um zemeckis and gale and but they, they will. But as a fan, but as a fan, what would you want if if you were I, I able to put it out there? I, I honestly don't know. I know what I wouldn't want, and that would to be a Back to the Future four, okay. or a Back to the Future reboot or or Netflix series. Uh, don't no. want, don't yeah. want a reboot. Don't want the series. Yeah. If there was a four, I think the only way I would accept it is if it was Marty's grandkids. Well, uh, I don't want a four, but, and 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 I think I'm going to yeah, yeah. get what I don't want uh, because Mrs. Zemeckis and Gale have stated categorically that there yeah. will be no more Back to the Future films. And but but that's this, why Back that's why they destroyed the time machine. But Back to the Future, the musical, is a wonderful way of re-exploring Back to the Future from a different standpoint, and what a what a great idea. Marty is a musician. Yep. Perfect venue to play some musical. Yep. And I, I've seen bits and pieces of it, and it looks wonderful. And and the actor who plays Marty is a, a young British man named Ollie Dobson, who's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And 
Roger Bart, that's uh, very, very uh, respected Broadway and television and film actor who was playing Doc. And, very cool. You know, talk, you know, talk about pressure right. to under oh, yeah. <laughs> that kind of a role, that iconic a role, and make it his own, and he does. Well, uh, let me ask this question. Yeah. Would you accept if they took, like they did with Hamilton, and brought it to screen, um, you know, it, like to streaming? It's, it's, first of all, it's not a matter of what I would accept because I'm just – I'm just on the side. I'm right. happy to be where I am, but no. And I specifically said, and I, I believe it's in the book, I said to Bob Gale, with the musical, would you be considering a film version of the musical? And he said, absolutely not. Wow. Okay. Hmm. Um, he said, we put the words the end at the end of Back to the Future 3 for a reason. <laughs> right, but, but 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 I don't. I wouldn't see it though as redoing the movie. It, it's more bringing the musical to a broader audience. Um, mm. I I would I would almost want to see it as if it's an actual night of the production, like they did with Hamilton for Disney Plus. I'd almost rather see that with either the London cast or the Broadway cast, and, and, and have it made available. Who knows what the future might bring? This is true, which is why we go back to the future. Precisely. Derek, any final questions or final thoughts? Uh, I did have one question I wanted to ask. When putting together the book, was there something that really uh, surprised you or that that really touched you the most? Um, what The best part of doing the book was doing the interviews and, and getting to spend the time with everybody. Writing the book itself was a bitch and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I forget who it was that said this. Um, it's, a, it's a somewhat famous quote. Um, I hate writing. I love having written. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. And I've heard that one. I mean, it, it was it was a great experience, um, but it was a hard experience. But I had such a wealth of information and and stories and and material that to make it into a coherent two hundred and twenty five page book was mm -hmm. a lot of work. And and again, I believe it. I have to I have to thank Bob Gale who, you know, I, I call the godfather of that book because he was always there if I needed him. Um, mm. I showed him everything first, and he was tremendously um, encouraging and, and complimentary, and, and he's always spoken so highly of it. And when it, in the introduction he does in the book, he calls me a good writer, when Bob Gale calls you a good writer, there is no <laughs> higher compliment. Yeah. That's awesome. It, it's so, Eric, or Derek, it sounds like we need to get for 2021, we need to get some more people from uh, Back to the Future on the show. <laughs> just really have fun with this. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> because, I mean, you and I both, we obviously we have a love of the franchise and – Oh, yeah. there, there's more stories to be told. Um, well, there are more stories to be told, but there are a lot of stories to be read in 
Back to the Future, Future. the Ultimate Visual History Revised and Expanded Edition. Available on Amazon and a bookstore near you. And on a very special website where you can order it from me and I'll autograph it to you. Oh, excellent. That may be the way I have to get the book. And that website is www.blastfromthepaststore.net. Excellent. Where else can people find you online? Well, I'm always hanging out on Facebook. You can find me there. Um, and, you know, there are, there are a lot of fun Back to the Future fan pages yeah. on Facebook. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, some, some get a little crazy. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> have, have, um, go a little deep in picking apart the movie. Mm. Um, one, of, one of my favorites was, um, how, how could Doc Brown in 1955 attach a 1985 video camera to his TV set? And make it play. And my answer is, and, and I use this a lot, you believe that Doc Brown invented a machine that can travel through time. <laughs> you don't think he can attach a video recorder to a television? Come on. <laughs> uh, hello, it was the antenna, antenna screws, because for a while, that's how we used to have to attach our video games to the TVs. As oh, yet, yeah. <laughs> was on the video. You, you attach them to the antenna screws on the back. There you go. See, you have you have a different answer. My answer is it's a movie. Yes, <laughs> that works too. <laughs> but um, just go no, with it. It's it's great fun, and and people there, there are just so many people out there who show such a love for the film. It's very gratifying as well for the films. Yeah. Uh, so well, again, I'm there. Um, my website. Get the book, and and I'll sign it any way you want. I'll sign it your friend in time. I'll say great Scott I'll do whatever you like (laughs) welcome to the cafe 80s (laughs) Um, so before we let you go uh, we want to thank you again for joining us this was a blast chance to to go back in time about going back to the future which I don't know I don't know if that worked or not but who cares (laughs) don't like it we can hire Eric Stoltz to do it we'll give him direction But you know what we always say? To be continued. To be continued. Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. (laughs) So, um... The bad crowd you've been hanging out with is a science fiction club? This has been a Weeby Geeks production. You know how Peter Parker doesn't always know how to tell Mary Jane how he really feels? Or how Tony Stark seems to have everything but not the deep emotional connection his complex soul craves? Well, you don't have to be a superhero or a wealthy industrialist to experience the kind of rich relationships and life we all long for. I'm Mark Wen, and I'm a men's wisdom coach. After people work with me, they have the confidence, emotional intelligence, and communication skills they need to be the heroes of their own story. To find out more, go to markwentcoaching.com. M-A-R-C-W-E-N-D-T, coaching.com. 
We are in Nerdlanta. We got these filters. I think they're called pea poppers. That's for popping peas. Yeah, for popping all the peas. Sweaty balls and poppers. Always a time. Can a podcast be a reboot? Oh, God, yes. The generation generation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's awesome. We are highly, highly dedicated at a late hour. You know, it's just always, always fun to talk about geeky stuff. stuff. And, and Atlanta is the place, place to do, do it. it. I guess that's it. We played the promo. So. That was an awesome promo. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This has been a Weeby Geeks production.